Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 3. It's good to see all of you here this morning. To those of you who are online tuning in, welcome uh, in as well. Uh, Revelation 3 for you as well. Don't think that it doesn't apply to you. Hopefully you have your Bibles. We're continuing in our series this morning that James and I began six weeks ago now, seven-week series that we have titled Seven, uh, in which we will be discussing or have been discussing at this point the seven messages or seven words to the seven churches in Asia Minor from Jesus. And believe it or not, we're almost done. We've done five weeks already. We're in the sixth week this morning. It's, it's amazing. It feels like we just started this thing yet, last week, and, and it's been five weeks moving into the sixth week. James is actually not here this morning. He is in Idaho in a uh, safe place, safe process workshop. And uh, he's actually talking to them about doing the Fearless series and... Uh, kind of reconstructing their recovery um, model to fit more of what we're doing. And so praying for him as uh, he is doing ministry there, that God would work through uh, his efforts in effecting change there. Um, but we are, we are, yeah, wrapping up week six of seven. Um, let me give you a recap of the five weeks, just so it's fresh on your mind. Uh, if you think all the way back five weeks ago, we began with the church in Ephesus. And many of you are familiar with this church, probably more so than any of the others in this list, uh, because we have the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, which is the church in Ephesus that received that. And Jesus' word to them was return return. He says that you've abandoned your first love. Return back to me. Return. The second week, we talked about the church in Smyrna, and the word that he gave to the church in Smyrna was the word remain. Remain faithful in the midst of trial. Remain faithful in your day-to-day actions. Remain faithful in your speech. There were several things that we talked about that week, about remaining faithful. Week three, we talked about Pergamum. Jesus says to them, recognize Recognize where you have compromised in your faith and repent and turn back to purity. Week four, we talked about the church in Thyatira. And the the word that Jesus gave them was resist. Resist the false teachers. Resist those who are teaching false doctrine. If you remember, they uh, had begun buying into a false teacher that, that Jesus calls Jezebel, And he tells them to resist her, for he's coming soon. Last week, we talked about Sardis. And the word that he gave to the church in Sardis was revive. He says, you have the reputation of being alive. People think you're a great church, but really you're dead. You've fallen into spiritual lethargy. When you, if you remember back, you give to get. When you serve to be seen, when you limit your love, when your forgiveness is only for a few people, you may have fallen into spiritual lethargy. And so Jesus says, wake up, revive yourselves. Now, the last several weeks, if we're just being honest, have been kind of tough, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're difficult things that Jesus has said to these churches. He's had some sharp rebukes to some of these churches, more so than others, but they've all been pretty, pretty challenging, and, and so they've been challenging messages. This week, there's no rebukes from the Lord. Amen? All encouragement. Raise your hand if you need some encouragement this week. Yes. Amen. I, I know I do. So this week, we're talking about the church in, in Philadelphia, and this is the ancient city of Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We know that is certainly true because Jesus would have rebuked them greatly just for being Eagles fans, right? 
would have been almost certainly more rebukes for Philadelphia than anywhere. I'm just kidding. If you're from Philadelphia, I love you. Please don't throw uh, cans or coffee at me like you do at your games. All right, so um, this is the ancient city of Philadelphia, and, and we know a lot about this city, actually, from uh, other historical sources. Uh, they suffered greatly under the emperor at that time in Rome, the emperor Domitian. Uh, in 92 AD, it was recorded that he ordered half of the vineyards of Philadelphia to be shut down and destroyed, which created massive economic ripple effects that were disastrous to their economy. Uh, on top of that, Philadelphia was seen as a missionary city. Now, not a missionary city for Christianity, a missionary city for Hellenism, for the spread and perpetuation of Greek culture, religion, philosophy, and ideology. They were seen as sort of the gateway into the rest of the world. So lots of people were, were peddling Greek culture at a higher level there than they were anywhere else because there were so many passersby that would come through and, and learn about what Greek culture was all about. So it was a very rough place to be as a Christian. It was not an easy place to witness. It was not an easy place to share the gospel because there was so much heightened Hellenism that was being actually uh, actively thrown out. And so, so being a Christian there was just a tough, it was a tough place to live. And so surprisingly, the word that Jesus gives to the believers in Philadelphia is this word here, rejoice. Rejoice. Now, why would Jesus tell them to rejoice? That seems like a very weird thing to say to a church in a place like this. And so we're going to unpack this this morning. Three reasons that we find Philadelphia rejoicing in. And, and what I want us to do this morning is I want us to think about how these reasons apply to us as well at City on a Hill. Certainly, we don't face the same kind of pressures that the believers in Philadelphia did 2,000 years ago, but, but perhaps there are some takeaways for us to dwell on this morning. Perhaps we need a reminder to rejoice as well. So we're going to talk through the reasons. Here's the first one. They were reminded of who Jesus is with the description of Jesus, the description of Jesus. Now, if you haven't noticed, uh, almost all of these letters to these churches begin with a description of Jesus. He tells them up front, this is who is talking to you. If you remember two weeks ago, Thyatira, one of the things that Jesus said was uh, that he is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. James unpacked what that meant a couple weeks ago, that the, the flaming fire in his eyes represents the idea that Jesus can see everything. Nothing escapes his attention. His feet, like burnished bronze, have, they, they, they signify power and authority. He can stomp on those who resist him. He can stomp on those uh, false teachers who are perpetuating this false gospel. This week, we get a description of him as well. There's actually three descriptors that we find in verse 7. Here's the first one. He identifies himself as the Holy One. Now, this isn't too surprising, right? I mean, no one, no one is shocked by that. Jesus is holy. Hopefully, you agree with that. If you don't, we have probably bigger fish to fry than what we're about to talk about. Talk with me afterwards. The Greek word here for holy, it's the Greek word hagios, and it literally means to be set apart, to be set apart, separate from the common condition. So you have this normal, common standard or condition, and then that which is holy is set apart from the normal standard and sort of elevated to a higher level apart from the norm. 
Okay, so we say and the scriptures say God declares that God himself is holy. It means that he is above all normal standards and conditions. He is above everything. He is separate and set apart from the rest. Now, why is this a good reminder? Why does this serve as a good reminder? Because think about this. The believers are right in the thick of a godless city under the leadership of a wicked emperor. Uh, and In fact, we learn that they have other enemies in this city as well. Verse 9, it says that there are those who say they are Jews and they are not, but lie. They belong to the synagogue of Satan. So they're attacking the Christians. The emperor is attacking the Christians. There's all of this godlessness happening around them with Hellenism. They're the ugly ducklings here in Philadelphia. They are not the norm. And you have to imagine life was difficult for them such that there were probably days when they woke up and they were just like, man, I don't know if this is worth it. Like, I'm just kind of ready to throw in the towel. The emperor is against us. There's all these people that are against us. We're being prevented from basic welfare because we're Christians. Is this really worth it? And so this is a great reminder because this description reminds them the reason that we live these set-apart lives from the world is because we serve a set-apart Savior. So rejoice. He is holy, and he has made us holy. That's why we live the, the, the way we do. That's why we live this difficult life that God has called us to. Secondly, he identifies himself as the true one the true one. Again, not surprising. I mean, we, we would say that everything God says is true, that there is nothing false in him. But really, this word in Greek, it, it doesn't have as much to do with truth, per se, as it does the idea of, of being genuinely something. So, it, it's the same kind of thing, but it's a little bit different. It's the Greek word alethanos. It means not a counterfeit. And so, why, again, is this significant for the believers in Philadelphia to hear? If Jesus is the genuine one, if he is the true one, then he is saying, I am the genuine Messiah. I am the one that the scriptures foretold of. I am he. And all of these Jews who say they are Jews, they are ethnically Jew, but they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah and belong to the synagogue of Satan, they're persecuting you, but you need to know they are wrong because I am the Messiah. I am the true and genuine one. Third, he says, I'm the sovereign one, the sovereign one. Now, notice what it says in the text. It says that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, this is like one of the verses where you get to in Revelation, and you're like, all right, I'm done. I don't understand this. I don't know what this means. What does that mean? The key of David, opening doors no one can shut, shutting doors no one can open. This actually illustrates, I think, a really great point which is understanding the Old Testament is critical to understanding the New Testament, specifically Revelation. Revelation draws upon the Old Testament a tremendous amount. For those of you who are in my New Testament class, when we went through Revelation, you saw that. There are tons of allusions to the Old Testament. This is one of them. This comes from Isaiah chapter 22. So for those of you who are not uh, familiar with the history of the kings of Judah, Isaiah 22, God speaks to 
King Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah at the time. He's actually the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, who was a particularly bad king and, and got into some trouble uh, for some political relationships that he created that were not of God. But Hezekiah was not like his father. He was a good king. He reinstituted biblical worship. He tore down idols throughout Judah and the rest of the land. He reformed Israel to be people of the Torah. And in Isaiah chapter 22, God comes to Hezekiah and he tells him, you are to replace your chief steward. So remember last week we talked about what a steward was, someone who stands in the place of a monarch who has the authority and the power to make decisions for that king. That's what God is referring to here in Isaiah 22. He tells Hezekiah, your steward is not a good man, and I'm going to punish him. So you are to replace him, his name was Shebna, with another man by the name of Eliakim. And he says of Eliakim, this is God speaking, Isaiah 22, verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Eliakim, in other words, has access as the steward, the chief steward of King Hezekiah. He has been given the keys of the Davidic kingdom to allow access to the king and the kingdom to anyone he desires and to prevent and deny access to anyone he desires. He is in charge. In other words, he who holds the keys calls the shots. That's, that's the way the steward operated in the ancient world. And so Jesus is borrowing this terminology, almost quoting it word for word, but there are some differences. He's bringing a fulfillment to this position that is greater than what Eliakim could do, because Jesus is not the chief steward, is he not? He's the king. So he's not just given the keys of the kingdom, he has the keys of the kingdom. He is the owner of the keys of the kingdom. And beyond that, the doors that he is opening are not the keys to the earthly Davidic kingdom, but to the kingdom of heaven. Or as verse 9 calls it, sorry, verse 12 calls it, the new Jerusalem, which is how Revelation refers to the kingdom of heaven regularly throughout this, this apocalypse. So when Jesus says, I hold the Davidic keys and I can open doors that no one will shut and I can shut doors that no one will open, what he's saying is, I decide who comes into New Jerusalem and who does not. I am the holy one. I am the true one. But more importantly, I'm the sovereign one, the sovereign king who makes these decisions for eternity. There is no king higher than Jesus. There is no emperor higher than the Lord Jesus. He is the highest there is. He decides who comes in and who goes out. He is in control. You see, church, we can rejoice because Jesus has revealed himself as one who is set apart from the rest of the world and who sets us apart from the rest of the world. We can rejoice because he is the true and genuine Messiah that we can put our hope in, who can grant eternal life. And he can grant eternal life because he holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he's on our side. And so he says to Philadelphia, rejoice. And I would say to you, city on a hill, rejoice. We're in the midst of a, again, global pandemic that has fundamentally changed the way everything happens. We're in a country that if we're just being honest, is clearly very tense and divided perhaps more than we've been in the last 200 years, toxic towards one another, Christians toxic towards one another. Things can seem out of control. And so we can rejoice when we understand that Jesus is still very much 
in control, that he is the king, that he holds the keys, that none of this has taken him by surprise. And so we can rejoice in him. Secondly, he says you can rejoice in the determination of the church, the determination of the church. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. That's, again, the door to the new Jerusalem. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, a couple things about this church that I think are pretty interesting and important for us to get. One, he says, you have little power. What does that mean? You have little power. You will hear a very common interpretation of this passage, primarily in like word of faith, name of claim it, name it, claim it movements, uh, TV preachers, where they will interpret this power as spiritual power. And they will say, well, Jesus is rebuking them here. You have little spiritual power. That doesn't make really any sense in the context. There's nothing else negative about what Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia. But see, this is what they'll say. Well, see, they had very little spiritual power, but Jesus wants us to have great spiritual power. And Jesus wants us to have great obedience, not great spiritual power. What he's saying is not that you have little spiritual power, but that you have little actual power because you're a little church. You are small in size. You exist in a hostile city, and so it's not popular to be a Christian in Philadelphia. No one is running to the church on Sunday mornings. They're not in the Bible Belt, right? There's not a lot of people coming to Easter and Christmas. It's not popular. They're a little church. They lack authority. They lack the ability to affect any sort of change in the community they exist in. They're persecuted, and they're looked down upon by all of these people. And even in the midst of that, they're determined to be obedient to the Lord Jesus in two specific ways. And notice what they are. First, he says that they have protected the truth. He says, yet you have kept my word. You've kept my word. Now, the word here, this is interesting in Greek. It's the, it's the Greek word that means guard, to guard something, to keep or to protect or guard. What are they guarding the word from? Let me ask you this. What has Jesus been rebuking the last several churches for? Yeah, false teaching, exactly. So they are protecting the word from false teachers. And this is a marked difference between the, the two previous churches that we've looked at, right? Pergamum tolerated it. Remember the Nicolaitans had, had rolled in and, and they were teaching things and, and the church in Pergamum hadn't fully bought into it, but there were people in the church that were buying into it and they were just sort of turning the other way and sort of allowing it to happen. We get to Thyatira and they full on embraced it. They're full on following these false teachers at this part. And then we get to this small little church in Philadelphia, and they're guarding the truth. They're protecting the truth from false teaching. You see, part of what makes a church a faithful church of the Lord is the way that we guard the Word of God. It's our relationship to, to Scripture, the way we stand for truth, the way we call out false teaching, our relationship to the Scripture matters. And, and let me just be honest with you for a minute. Social media has made this very difficult in the church. And here's why. Because it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. On one hand, we have access now greater than we have ever had to some of the best Bible teachers on earth. You right now on your phone with the press of a few buttons can navigate yourself to almost an unending number of great Bible teachers, more than you have time to listen to in a day. 
phenomenal teachers, well-trained, a part of a community of faith, vetted, held accountable, wonderful stuff. On the other side, what social media has done is it's allowed anyone to have an audience. So write a blog, you're an authority now, all of a sudden. One blog, I'm an authority. You'll, and you'll hear people, well, I read this blog, or I saw this post, or I read this, or this guy said this, as if that has any sort of meaning or value whatsoever. Anyone can put anything on the internet, and it can sound authoritative. And so we, I have this a lot where people will send me like, you know, have you ever heard of this person, or have you ever heard of this book, or I'm reading this, or I'm listening to this guy, do you know of this church? And let me just be honest with you, I appreciate that greatly. I have people that will text me and be like, I know you're busy, I'm sorry. Don't apologize for that. That is my job. That is what I am here for. I want to shepherd you well. And so if you have questions about something you're reading or listening to, and you're not sure about it, you're like, I've never heard of this guy, it sounds kind of weird, send it to me. And if I've never heard it, I'll vet it. I'll listen. I'll look. I'll see what I, what I can find on it. I, I, I can't guarantee I'll give you much, because there, there may not be much on the person but have that discussion, please. Seriously, it's so important. You're not, you're not putting anyone out by doing that. That's why we're here. We're here to help you. We have to be protective about what we allow in, what we take in, spiritually speaking. We have to be willing to protect the truth. The truth, hear me when I say this, it not only prevents us from walking down the wrong paths, but it tells us which paths we're actually supposed to be going down. It tells us not only where we're not to go, but where we are to go. It reminds me of the story. This is a true story of Albert Einstein, who had gotten on a train and was traveling somewhere. And if you've ever traveled by train, <clears throat> you know that when the train gets there, the doors open, you get on the train, you sit down, <clears throat> and then the ticket master comes and looks at your ticket. So Einstein had sat down. The ticket master was walking down the aisle. He comes to Einstein, clearly recognizes him. And, and Einstein is frantically looking through his pockets and his bag, trying to find his train ticket. And the, the ticket master says, uh, Einstein, it, sir, we recognize you. We, we trust that you, you bought your ticket. It's, it's fine. You're okay. And, uh, and, he, and he moves on down the aisle. Several moments go by. The ticket master's coming back down the other way to make sure that no one else had gotten on that he missed. And at this point, Einstein is on the floor looking under his seat, frantically trying to find this ticket. And the ticket master says, sir, I... I trust that you purchased a ticket. It's okay. And Einstein turns around and he says, Sir, it's not a matter of trust. I don't remember where I'm going. <laughs> See, there are, there are a lot of Christians today in the church that have no idea where they're going. We have to protect the Scripture. It matters so much. It matters so much. It tells us where we're going. We have to have tact about it. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't correct every little wrong thing, right? Don't, don't, don't go there, but we have to be willing to stand and protect the truth. Secondly, they not only protected the truth, but they persevered in trial. Notice he says, and you did not deny my name. So not only did they protect the faith from false teaching, but they maintained the faith in the midst of suffering. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Let's get real here for a minute. We struggle in the church in the West grasping this concept of suffering for Jesus' name. If for no other reason, then we don't really suffer. We, we just don't. Uh, we don't really face persecution here <clears throat> in the United States. No one, no one faces what we would call 
persecution in the American church. Maybe you get made fun of a little bit for being a Christian. Maybe people post negative comments when you post Bible verses. I post a lot of Bible verses on my Facebook. I'm friends with a lot of very godless people. I've never gotten one negative comment. In fact, I've gotten more negative comments from Christians than I have non-Christians. So that tells you that the temperature in the world in America, at least, towards us. We don't really face persecution. The most persecution we face in the American church is you have to wear a mask right now. And I, look, I get it. It's a sensitive subject for some of you. I'm not trying to step on your toes. and No one wants to wear them. We won't wear them any longer than we have to. But that's, listen, that's not persecution. It is not persecution. It's not even close to persecution. In fact, it's a slap in the face to people who are actually being persecuted right now in the church. What kind of persecution is happening right now in the church? I'm glad you asked. Let me talk to you a moment about it. <clears throat> Over the last year, starting Christmas Eve, we'll go there, Christmas Eve, a small Christian village in the state of Borno, seven people randomly gathered out of a Christian gathering and publicly executed, and a child was taken uh, captive. Houses of all the families were burned, and the church was burned as well. A day later, ISIS released a video of another 10 Christians being executed in a public forum. This, these kinds of things are happening almost every day. You don't hear about them. We hear about all the goofy nonsense that we hear about in America, but, but there are actual Christians being persecuted, actually persecuted in other parts of the world. Let's talk about COVID for a minute, right? Because COVID has presented us in America with some very real economic challenges, and, and I will not downplay that. Some of you have struggled mightily. There have been tremendous difficulty on an economic level with job loss, with all kinds of things, so I fully recognize that, and I don't want to downplay that at all. But let me ask you this. What if the effects of these things were weaponized against you because of your faith? Right now, you're, it's just a, you're a casualty of what is happening. What if they were weaponized against you? In India, this is predominantly happening. So in places like Bangladesh and surrounding uh, countries, surrounding villages, Christians, prior to COVID-19, we'll go here first. Prior to COVID-19, Christians who lived in primarily Hindu villages were boycotted by the people in their villages. Here's what that means. It means that as a Christian, if you lived in one of these places, people in the village who sell local wares, who run the local water well, none of them would sell to you. None of them would allow you to draw water. You have no food. You have no uh, clothing or, or any materials that you can buy. You cannot draw water in your own village. So what that means is every day you have to take a sometimes four to six hour trip by boat and by foot to a neighboring village not as hostile towards Christians to get your basic needs. Now that was before COVID-19. COVID-19 happens Local governments lock their cities down and prevent anyone from traveling and anyone from coming in, which now means you cannot travel, which means you have no food and you have no water. Beyond that, many reported in these villages that they actually contracted COVID-19, that they went to their local doctors and hospitals and were told, these hospitals are funded by Hindu money, not Christian money. We can't help you. This is their hospitals. Sorry. If you want to renounce Jesus, then we'll treat you. If not, hope it works out. We don't face that here. 
Let me just give you some raw data. Since January, 2,983 Christians have been killed for their faith. In 2019, 5,000 almost were killed for their faith. So far this year, 9,488 churches or Christian buildings have been attacked or burned. 3,711 people have been detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. Someone came up to me after first service and said, well, you know there's no trial after you're detained. I said, not in America, because you're innocent until proven guilty. In these countries, you're guilty until proven innocent. If you don't get a trial, you don't get a chance to prove your innocence. You just go to jail, just go to prison. And no one says a word. You're just erased in a crappy little cell where you're, again, not fed or given anything to drink. The conditions are horrible. There's no sewage. This is what our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing. Some people in some parts of the world are literally risking everything for the name of Jesus. And we get upset over a mask in our safe and secure air-conditioned building with running water, comfortable seating, and electricity. Again, not guilt-tripping, okay? And, and I, you have your convictions, and that's fine. I'm not trying to take away from that. But, but here's why I think this matters, because it's supremely important, it's supremely helpful to have a perspective of global Christianity, because it looks a lot different in other parts of the world than it does in America. And, and there are times when we can face problems that seem very catastrophic to us, and in light of a more robust perspective, globally speaking, all of a sudden our problems become a little more manageable. Like, yeah, we can deal with that. We talk about government infringing on our religious liberties, and certainly that's a, 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 a very real problem that Christians in America should be aware of and should be actively trying to prevent in helpful and lawful ways. But our government's not withholding food, water, and medical care for you because you're a Christian. So I think we're doing better than, than maybe we think we are. You see, Jesus says to Philadelphia, I know you're small. You're insignificant. And yet, you have guarded my word and you have not denied my name. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of persecution, even though they were a little church, they did it. And so Jesus says, rejoice. You've done well, well done, good and faithful servants. Now, in order for a church to get this kind of encouragement for the Lord, it means that individuals have to be doing this, right? And so I'd ask you the question, what would Jesus say of City on a Hill? What would he say of you? Would he encourage you for your commitment to the word? And, and, and that's a key word, commitment, conviction, not your command of Scripture. I'm not talking about how many Bible verses you memorize or I don't know any theology or I, I don't, I'm not a seminary trainer. I'm not talking about that. Because hear me when I say this. Let me give you the truth. Jesus is not nearly as concerned about your command of Scripture as he is your commitment to it. Now, the goal should be to have a, a good command of the Word of God. But listen, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have about the Bible if you're not committed to it. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. How committed are you? Are you in a weekly Bible study? Are you in a life Bible study? And if not, why not? What is stopping you? What would Jesus say about our relationship to the Bible? Philadelphia was committed. He says, rejoice. You have a description of the Lord who is true and holy and sovereign. You have a determination to be obedient to him. And last, 
rejoice in the demise of the opposition. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, we're talking here about the Jewish people in Philadelphia who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, ethnic Jews who had rejected the Messiah. So they have vacated the claim to be the true people of God. This is what Paul deals with in Romans, where he talks about those who are Jew are not Jew by birth, but spiritually Jewish, because they receive Jesus as the Messiah. They receive the chosen anointed one that the Old Testament scriptures had been uh, predicting for, for centuries. And so this passage seems pretty straightforward. Again, people, these unbelieving Jews are going to come and bow down to you. Cool. But it takes on a whole new meaning when you understand the Old Testament. This is, again, an allusion to an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 4. It says, The sons of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet. This passage and several other Old Testament passages teach that in the end, the end times, because Judaism had a a view of the end times as well, Daniel, Zechariah, there's lots of places where it's talked about, uh, Jeremiah, that in the end, unbelieving Gentiles would come and bow at your feet, the believing Jews' feet, that is. So the small little nation of Israel that all of these major empires are always trying to war against and are sometimes successful at it, what God is saying is one day these massive empires of these Gentile pagans, they're going to come and bow at your feet. And Jesus here reverses it. He's like, yeah, it's, it's, not, the, it's not the unbelieving Gentiles anymore that are going to do the bowing because the Gentiles believe it's going to be the unbelieving Jews who come and bow at the Gentile Christian's feet in Philadelphia. Now, as a Jew, this stings, doesn't it? When you read this and you're like, wait a minute, he reversed that. We've messed up big time, apparently. This cannot be good. So the, so the hostile Jews have it coming for them. That's what Jesus is saying. Justice will be had. We want justice, don't we? When, when, we're, when it's not against us, we want justice. Can we be honest about that? Are you awake? I remember when I was in my undergrad, and before I went to even UTA, I was at TCC, I, uh, I would come down this one road. It's the main road. I can't think of the name of the, the street, but the main road that TCC is off of. It goes all the way down to uh, Highway 820. And I remember I was, I was going down this road one day. It was after class, and uh, it was a good amount of traffic. And there was this one car. Um, I don't really know how to describe it. It was... It was kind of like a Fast and the Furious car, but like the Wish.com version of it, just very broke off looking. Um, and it's just like weaving in and out of cars, really annoying, I'm getting on everyone's nerves. And you can just see people honking and, you know. And, and we get to this light right before the highway, and there was this lane that opened up on the left, and it was a turn-only lane. You had to turn on this weird access road. And I knew, I was behind the guy at this point, we were at a red light, and I, I could just see it. I could, it was like this prophetic moment. This guy is going to hit the gas as soon as that light turns green, cut these people off to the right of him, and get back over in the lane to go under the highway and onto the highway. I just could see it in my mind. The light turns green. He peels out and starts off because he's going to try to get around. Well, there's this truck next to him. And, you know, 
guys who drive trucks in Texas don't like these little toy cars, right? And so he hits the gas, he peels out, and they take off side by side. Of course, the car is faster. I mean, there's a giant truck. And he starts to try to get over, and right at the last second as he's getting over in front of the truck, he clips the curb and blows both tires out on the left side. And I was like, yes! Oh, man, it was so good. Justice. Just, and all these cars were honking at him. And I mean, it was just felt like finally the universe tipped in favor of justice. And I had to repent of it later, you know. God convicted my heart. Romans 12, 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Now listen, as hard as this is, please, dear people of God, listen to me. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And you need to hear this. Every injustice will be met with justice one day. Every injustice will be met with justice. Either the justice that God offers through Christ on the cross or justice that He brings in His wrath in the end. All injustice will be met with justice. You need to hear that. On the heels two weeks in of the Fearless series, we have a hundred women in this church going through a process, perhaps for the first time, where you are talking about and reckoning with and remembering horrific things that have happened to you, things that you've never told anyone, unimaginably difficult and painful things. And hopefully, this is the place where you talk about it for the first time, where you begin to let go of some of that. And listen, so much anger comes from this, and rightfully so. I'm angry for you. It makes me fear. There's nothing that makes me angrier than hearing women be victimized by sexual abusers. As a father of three little girls, there's nothing I can imagine myself becoming more furious about than this. And you need to hear, God will have vengeance on those who have harmed you, unrepentantly harmed you. He will. He will repay. Why is it important for you to hear that? Because it frees you, listen, to let go of the revenge that you want and begin the healing process. It releases you from captivity. Justice is always accomplished. There is no sin that will escape him. His eyes are like burning flames of fire. They think they get away with it, but they don't. He sees everything, all of it. Nothing escapes him. So rejoice in this. Take comfort in this. Jesus spells out the demise of his enemies, the unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia, those who perpetrate evil against Christians in other countries around the world, and those who unrepentantly enact evil on people here. Their time is coming. This is really what Revelation is all about. When you read Revelation from start to finish, this is really the the overarching narrative of the whole entire book, that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of the Lamb, who is Jesus, and the kingdom of the dragon, who is Satan, and in the end, the kingdom of the dragon gets absolutely smashed. It's not even a good fight. Like, if you were making a movie about this, directors would have to, like, do something with this. This isn't a very good story. There's no climax. Jesus just comes in and destroys everyone. 
In fact, it's really harrowing when you read it. The angels who come riding behind Jesus on the horses, it says they're all dressed in fine linens. What's the significance of that? They have no intention of fighting. They're like, yeah, we're just here to watch. Jesus got this. He'll do it. And he does. He absolutely obliterates them. In one swing of the sword from his mouth, they are destroyed. Rejoice. Rejoice. The people who have unrepentantly harmed you will pay. They will pay. It it will happen. And he removes the burden of trying to take justice into our own hands from us and frees us to just heal and glory in him. Where do we go? What happens to us, the kingdom of the Lamb? It tells us. Some of you have never heard this before. We go to the New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, verse 4. Hear this through the, the ears of someone who has been wounded. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We can rejoice in that because we serve that king of that kingdom. We can rejoice when we serve him well. We can rejoice that that king of that kingdom will someday bring vengeance. Look, I know it looks bleak out there, church. I do. I read the news. I hear the commentary. We live in a crazy world. It's probably not going to get any better. Everyone's like, I just can't wait till things get back to normal. It's probably not. It'll probably get worse. In some ways, it'll get better, and in some ways, it'll get worse. But hear me when I say this. We have a choice as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to either be anxious and fearful and let the chaos stir us up, or we can choose to rejoice in Him. Rejoice in our great God. Rejoice in our community of faith. Rejoice in the future promises that we have. It's our choice. I choose to rejoice. What will you choose? Pray with me. Lord, how we thank you. We're in awe of you. You are our defender, as we sang earlier. You go before us. You fight our battles even before we know they're there. And one day, God, the final battle will happen And every injustice will be met with your justice. And we take great solace in that. We honor you. We thank you for calling us out of darkness, for setting us apart. We pray for those brothers and sisters that we will see one day in eternity who live in other parts of the world who are facing much greater levels of persecution For your name, we pray for them, God. We pray for courage. We pray for boldness. We we pray for peace. We pray that you would continue to build them up, to guard the truth, and not deny you. And we pray that for ourselves as well, although we know the stakes are much different. And we rejoice knowing that one day you will come back for us. I pray for all those in groups right now, in the Fearless series, and those who have finished freedom groups, and those who are going into freedom groups, who are doing mentoring or discipleship, who are uncovering things that they've maybe never talked about before in their lives. I pray, God, that your your healing hands would come around them. 
and that freedom would be tasted for the first time in those areas. How we love you, how we're in all of you, we love you, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for uh, showing up. And uh, next week, we finish this out with Laodicea. Laodicea is one of my favorite parts of Revelation chapter 3. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not super positive, I'll be honest with you, um, but there's a lot of really great stuff in it. Hope your week is blessed. God bless you. We'll see you next time. And go Cowboys. <laughs>